bringing you the latest research, tools, and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy. It's Talk Healthy Today. Here's Lisa Davis. I am a huge fan of memoirs, and I just read a fantastic one. It is by Brian Cuban. It is called The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. Brian, so great to talk to you again. Welcome to Talk Healthy Today. Thanks for having me on, Lisa. You know, it's so great. We've spoken before on my other show, It's Your Health, and, and we talked about shattered image, which has to do with body dysmorphia, dysmorphia excuse me, and, and your struggle with body dysmorphic disorder. And I love how open you are. And I find it so incredibly helpful when you can share your story in the hopes of helping other people. And you've done that again with The Addicted Lawyer. You're so honest and open. Was this cathartic for you to write this? Uh, it, was, it was to an extent. Shattered Image was much more cathartic as my first, my first yeah. book, really getting it all out there. I wanted The Addicted Lawyer to be more than just, you know, cathartic for me. I wanted it to be something that actually had takeaways, you know, to be a little more than a memoir and have takeaways where people could use it in their recovery. And so that's why I had uh, stories from other law students, other lawyers, and other people who have gone through it as well as advice from people who are considered experts in the field. But yes, there was a cathartic core to it because I hadn't really talked about a lot of these issues in Shattered Image. You know, one of the things that grabbed me so much is when you're talking about addiction, uh, you write, did I know right from wrong? Of course. Did I care? No. Did I know I was destroying my life? Yes. Did I care? Yes. Could I stop? No. Addiction uh, overpowered my rational thought process to that extent. I thought it was so interesting when it was, did I care? Yes. And that you did care, but you, but you couldn't stop. Right. And that's what's I think so confusing for so many people when it comes to addiction. Absolutely. Lisa, what's one of the biggest disappointments I've had as an advocate for recovery is it is the number of people who believe truly believe that addiction is a choice. People get lost in the nuance between the first time you do something, the first time I did a line of cocaine, the first time I took a drink, versus the biological process that takes hold. Of course, the first time I did cocaine was a choice, right? That choice may have been, it may not have seemed like a choice at the time because of different uh, mental issues going on with me, different environmental factors. So, but that was technically a choice, but I did not choose everything that happened after that. I did not do that first line, take that first drink thinking, I'm going to get divorced three times, I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to, my legal career is going to collapse, and that's all going to be great, right? (laughs) It's not a choice. (laughs) I wouldn't think so. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the cocaine, because one of the things that stood out is you were talking about self-medicating and you said cocaine did not make me better at building and maintaining relationships. It just helped me overcome my often paralyzing fear of being rejected by women and worrying less when the relationships fell apart. Coke didn't help me focus in my career. It just helped me recover from the hangover from the night before. And you go on and on. And I think it's so interesting because that self-medication is a big thing. And it's not like the drug or whatever you're turning to and abusing is going to make these things doable, right? It just it just helps you get through it. But it's such a horrible crutch, and then it overtakes your life. But at the time, you, you're addicted, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I had so many years of my life dating back to childhood of not feeling adequate, not having a healthy yeah. self-image, having difficult relationships within my family structure that I instinctively, not knowing any better, I instinctively look for ways to make myself feel better about what I looked in the mirror. 
because what I saw in the mirror was this horrid kind of monster-like person. So I went through an eating disorder, alcohol, drugs, kind of like this behavioral wheel where I'm cycling through all these destructive behaviors without reaching out for any healthy resources. And that's what's so hard. And one of the things in the book is the reason you call it the addicted lawyer rather than just addiction or my battle with addiction is because there is something about being a lawyer and there's some ties to alcohol use, drug use, abuse. Talk to us about that aspect. Yes. A recent study back in February done by the uh, Hazleton Betty Ford Clinic in the American Bar Association found that almost one third of, of licensed attorneys are problem drinkers. One-third was the highest wow. level being lawyers under 10 years, just over one-third. That is a huge number. And it was something I noticed uh, as I was going through my issues and upon reflection, and I'm oh, 10 and a half years sober now, on reflection about what was going on back then, that there were so many in the legal profession who seemed to be struggling. I was doing cocaine. I was getting drunk with a lot of these people. So it was kind of interesting that I started writing The Addicted Lawyer well before this study came out. And then the study came out and I was kind of, okay, well, this validates what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> that's always nice. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, I love too, in the book, you talk to other lawyers who or attorneys who were addicted. You talk about Marsha, how she began drinking in high school and continued through college and basically how her life fell apart from that. And uh, it's interesting to see other people's stories in your book. Absolutely. And what I wanted to show with those stories, and there are law students too, because law students also have very high yeah. rates of, of drinking issues. And one of the things I say all the time is addicted law students become addicted lawyers. So it's important mm -hmm. we start back, you know, or start early in dealing with this. But I wanted to show that all paths may be different, but the road to redemption is there. Whether you've done something and you can no longer practice law, whether you leave the practice of law, whether you find recovery and go back and have a fulfilling practice of law, you can find redemption. And all of those stories are stories of redemption, hence the word redemption in the book. Yeah. And speaking of redemption, I don't want to give it away because I want people to get the book, but give us some of the steps for you for where you started to see that, okay, you know, I need to change this. This has to change. My moment really occurred. It was uh, Easter weekend, 2007. I was standing in the parking lot of a psychiatric facility for my second time after a drug and alcohol-induced blackout, where my girlfriend at the time, now wife, she stood by me, and we got married, uh, found me. And I was standing in that parking lot, Lisa, and I realized a couple things. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back because I'd probably be dead. Two, I was going to lose my family, and my family is very important to me. We had already started to distance from each other because of my drug and alcohol use. And that was the moment when I really realized that it was time to finally take a meaningful step forward into recovery. And so the next day, I walked into the rooms of uh, 12 Steps and began my journey. I picked up a desire chip. And since then, April 8, 2007, I have not taken a drink. I have not done drugs. So I've had over a decade of long-term recovery. But it wasn't just that, because I have a lot of underlying mental health issues. So there's been a lot of therapy, uh, psychiatrists, a lot of different types of therapy, antidepressant medication. I still see a psychiatrist weekly today. Talk to us about your relationships with your family back then and now and how it's changed throughout your recovery. And especially when you were using, I know that uh, I don't think they were aware, correct, at least for a part of that. 
Uh, no, they were not aware. My father was not aware until I went into recovery. My mother uh, was not aware in terms of the drug use, alcohol use. She lived in Pittsburgh. I was in Dallas. And so, obviously, those they were easier to keep things from. My brothers became aware of the drug and alcohol use the first time they took me to a uh, psychiatric facility in 2005 when I had become suicidal. And they came into my bedroom, and I had a weapon on my nightstand, and I was intending to take my life. So they became aware. But again, I wasn't ready in 2005. You would think that was my quote-unquote rock bottom, although I hate that term, because we don't have to hit rock bottom to recover. But yes, they, uh, you know, they, there was nothing they could do because I wasn't ready. At that time in 2005, they were willing to put me into residential treatment. Do, now, I'm very fortunate that I had a brother who was financially well off. They were willing to fund residential treatment. I refused. I just wanted them to leave me alone. I was not ready for recovery even at that moment. So what happened was I started to distance, right? Because now they know. I started yeah. to distance. And by the time I really did move, by the time I moved into recovery in 2007, I really, you know, had stopped going to family functions. I'd stopped being invited to a lot of family functions. And I was only hanging out with people who did what I did, except for my girlfriend, who I had met and had been dating for about a year. And I was able to hide all of this from her. Uh, And then she moved in with me. And then, you know, that's when it hit the fan when I had the drug and alcohol-induced blackout, and then she knew everything. But she stood by me, and we yeah. ended up dating for a decade as I repaired myself, repaired the trust that I broke. And, of course, I had to do it for me, not for her. And we ended up getting married. I had my one-year anniversary coming up in October. She stood by me. Relationships that's can fantastic. survive this. That is so nice to hear because I know you had gone through two other marriages and one of, I think both of them didn't really know what was going on. Three, excuse me. They didn't know what was going on. None of them knew what was going on. I was very good at hiding. I had a JD, you know, at law school, but I had a PhD in being able to camouflage these issues for the period of time I needed to, to seem like the respectable lawyer, even though my career had really come crashing down as a result of my drug and alcohol use. By the time I was in 2007, uh, when I you know, hit that tipping point, I had no clients left and I was really uh, you know, just surviving. Have you heard from lawyers? What advice do you have for people Every who are week. struggling and also who Every see? week. Okay, yeah, talk to us about this. I get emails from lawyers every week. Uh, I get them uh, from young lawyers, partners, managing partners, law students. Where they, and, and the general theme, Lisa, is they feel totally alone and lost because there is a huge stigma in the legal profession, huge with regards to seeking help. Because we're taught that vulnerability is a weakness starting in law school. Vulnerability is something we take advantage of as lawyers, right? It's not something yeah. that we admit. And to admit it, and one of the biggest parts of recovery is you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. And I write about this quite often. Uh, yeah. Being vulnerable in recovery, and lawyers have a very difficult time doing that. Law students have a difficult time doing that. It's a competitive environment. The legal profession tends to attract type, quote unquote, type A personalities. We're a profession of thinkers, not feelers. If you believe in the Myers Briggs, so not only are we not vulnerable, we believe we can think our way through the problem ourselves. One of the biggest issues I have with lawyers, in terms of that is when I try to bring them to the realize that 
I say today is as ever going today is as good as it's ever going to get outside of recovery. If you're not in recovery, don't wait for the consequences to catch up to you, right? Because addiction is progressive, and lawyers have a hard time realizing, and law students as well, that eventually, you know, performance starts getting worse and worse and worse. Eventually, it's going to fall off a cliff, and there may be consequences that may cost you your license. Why wait for that? Today is as good as it's ever going to get. Let's find recovery now. Let's try right now. Lawyers have a very difficult time accepting that. Yeah, I bet. And you mentioned earlier that you hate the rock bottom or how people use that, like you have to hit rock bottom to get help. No, you don't. So talk to us about that a little more and, and how to get that's right. that that's... into people's you know, minds. Well, it's what I just talked about with today is as good as it's yeah. ever going to get, right? That means today, yeah. isn't rock, today isn't rock bottom as we define it. And what happens is we define our, reco- we define our need to recover by consequences. Well, there are no consequences. That wasn't that bad. I've gotten over that. I mean, I've been to jail, right? That's a consequence. Yeah. That that didn't get me in recovery. That wasn't my quote-unquote rock bottom. I was suicidal. That wasn't my quote-unquote rock bottom. And so you just never know what, what that, that's going to be, And but we tend to define it by consequences. And it's become a stereotype that we believe as human beings that, okay, the consequences aren't that bad, so I haven't hit rock bottom. <laughs> and And yeah. in reality... You know, the the best time to do it is before you've reached that moment of consequences where you've lost your license, where you've been terminated from your job, where your marriage is failing, where you've gotten a DWI with either sole consequences or horrific consequences to somebody else because you killed somebody. Why, why allow consequences to dictate recovery? We shouldn't. Today's as good as it's going to get. As it's going to get, let's do it now. What what has happened is become ingrained as a form of denial, mm. as a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Using the term rock bottom has become a form of denial and recovery, because you're you're self defining it. Well, that wasn't that bad. I haven't hit rock bottom. I don't need to face these issues. It really is a form mm. of denial now, rather than something that is any kind of benefit to uh, recovery for anyone or the recovery movement. That's why I don't like the term. And what, oh, and what do you think about interventions? Just in terms of like a family I, or friends getting together and saying, hey, look, dude, you got a problem or however they say I've it. I've known interventions that have worked. I've known interventions that have failed. Of course, interventions can only be judged by, you know, how, by, by how long. They're judged by recovery, right? So sure. I don't know what studies are out there in terms of whether interventions work in terms of one year in recovery, two years in recovery, three years in recovery. I think you'd have to look at it from that, from that perspective. But I'm, I'm a fan of utilizing any tool that has an evidence base. Uh, now, I'm, I also, 12-step is an evidence base, but that's a different issue, and I got sober in 12-step. So, you know, it does help people, and, that, and that's fine. But we have a lot of tools out there, and professional interventions are one of those tools. I'm a fan of them, and I think you have to look at it based on the specific facts. Not every situation is right for a professional intervention, but I do believe that they can be beneficial. Well, talk to us a little bit about your recovery. I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of ups and downs. There's, do you ever go through denial while you're in recovery? Like, I don't need this. Why am I here? What's going on? This is bullshit, you know? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm human. I mean, I, 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 I have clinical depression. I, I deal with clinical depression as well as uh, being in recovery. Clinical depression. Recovery doesn't cure clinical depression. 
So I've, I've had some serious bouts of depression in recovery, and I deal with that. And I deal with it with a psychiatrist. I deal with it as, in, with antidepressant medication. I hope one day I you know, reach a point where that isn't necessary. But I'm, I, they, I believe antidepressants have been vital in saving my life in terms of staying on an even keel and not staying in those down lows, which do affect me now and then. It's life. I mean, life happens even in recovery. I used to work in a rehab. I was a hepatitis C educator, and and a lot of people were there because they had depression or other mental health issues, and they had used drugs and alcohol to self-medicate And versus either maybe not being aware that they could go to a psychiatrist or psychologist, not having the funds, not having the it's socioeconomic issues. I mean, there's a lot at play, but I thought stigma, yeah. I would think, would be a part of it. And stigma is a huge part of it. But again, stigma and shame are tie, are in, you know, are in, intertwined. So, yes. you know, when you're feeling stigma, there's almost always going to be a level of shame there. So I, I, you call it, you know, stigma, shame, and there are all kinds of things that play in that core there. But yes, I mean, stigma of seeking help, it's easier to self-medicate than actually deal with, you know, the issue. Was that I tell people all the time that I tell people all the time there were two cogs to my recovery, dealing with where I was and dealing with how I got there. Dealing with where I am is getting sober, you know, doing those streams to get a long term sobriety. Ten times harder was dealing with how I got there. And that was the stigma and the shame fighting through that. Is that also looking at the environmental factors and the pain that was, uh, you know, in your childhood and growing up and Absolutely. The shame from being bullied? Okay. Yeah. Because I know that Absolutely. you've gone that's, through that's, a lot of stuff. That's the shame part. Who wants to tear back the lives? That's vulnerability, right? Who wants to be vulnerable and tear back the lives of, you know, tear back their layers of their lives to a 15-year-old or whatever who may have been, you know, had a terrible relationship with parents, may have been sexually abused, physically abused, all these things. I've had lawyers and law students tell me the first time they've told anyone about abuse. And of course, I'm not a, I'm not a treatment provider. And I say, look, you know, we, you should consider, you should consider getting professional help. That's not what I do. I'm a recovery advocate, but yes, uh, who wants to deal with those things? It's very hard to tear back those layers, uh, especially for lawyers. Because you compartmentalize, you don't want to be vulnerable. You say, I've dealt with that, I've dealt with that, let's deal with today, I've dealt with that. But it's not. When in reality, right? they haven't. Right, and they need to. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm a big believer in uh, trauma as a, uh, the trauma theory of addiction. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer that if there's unresolved trauma, it will always be sitting there on tapping you on your shoulder as a potential trigger for relapse. I completely agree. Brian, this has been great. Your book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption is fantastic. Brian, tell us all the ways we can find you on social media. You can find me on, you can find me on Twitter at BCuban. I have on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I have an Addicted Lawyer Facebook page. And The Addicted Lawyer is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, I'm so glad you came on uh, the show here, Talk Healthy Today. So glad you're listening. If you like the show, please rate and review. You can find us on social media as well at Talk Healthy, the number two day on Twitter and Snapchat, Talk Healthy Today podcast on Facebook. Thank you so much and stay well.